thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Our whole job was to try and figure out where he was. We knew he was alive. The night of the 4th, he ended up showing up on TV, and that's the only reason we knew he was alive. And then it's like, okay, now we have a rescue mission we have to go do happily, but where is he? Service in the 160th is a calling fuel answer for the mission is constantly demanding and hard. My only true ally is the night and the element of surprise. In battle, I eagerly meet the enemy for I volunteered to be up front. I fear no foe's ability nor underestimate his will to fight. And when the impossible has been accomplished, the only reward is another mission no one else will try. I will never surrender nor leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy, and under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. I serve with the memory and pride of those who have gone before me, for they loved to fight, fought to win, and would rather die than quit. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and those words I just read are part of the creed of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment Airborne, better known as the Night Stalkers. And this being the 160th episode here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, who better to feature? However, as I just said, that is just merely excerpts of the creed, and there are some parts I did not include, such as, I guard my unit's mission with secrecy. My manner is that of the special operations quiet professional. Secrecy is a way of life. And indeed, for about the past year, I have been working to find a couple guests willing to come on and talk about the Night Stalkers. Well, I finally did, and joining me here in Richmond, Virginia, are Stan Wood and Trey Williams. Gentlemen, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Good morning. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it's so good to have you, and I hope you'll accept my apologies for manipulating a little bit the creed there. Uh, I know it's something you all cherish in the regiment, and uh, I needed to just make it work for the introduction here. But I think the 160th, the regiment, the Night Stalkers, these are all terms we can use interchangeably, I hope, today. And in case the viewers are not familiar, probably the best way to summarize, if, if you don't mind the example from Hollywood, is they were pretty heavily featured in the movie Black Hawk Down from 2001. Mm -hmm. And as we'll get to today, I believe both of you gentlemen were in the Battle of Mogadishu. That's yep. correct. Okay, wow. Well, we have a lot to unpack, and I'm really looking forward to it. Trey, since I started off with you, could you give us a quick background? We want to learn about you before we learn about the regiment. So where are you from? Tell us briefly about your military career, sure. and what are you doing now? So uh, I am from Hampton Roads area of Virginia, Portsmouth, okay. Virginia. I went to East Carolina University, go Pirates. Uh, and there I was on an Army ROTC scholarship, graduated in 86, and went to flight school immediately after graduation. My first couple of years in the Army, I lived on Navy ships, believe it or not, flying for Operation Prime Chance. And I got to know some of the 160th guys through my interactions on living on barges or frigates and destroyers, flying, you know, night armed reconnaissance and Kiowa warriors. And at the time, late 80s, 
I had about 500 goggle hours, which at the time was fairly significant. And I assessed for the 160th because I was enamored, you know, with the guys I was running into over in the Persian Gulf. And I just thought that was the next step in my career in terms of professionalism and serving this country. And next thing you know, I assessed and showed up at the regiment in, gosh, it would have been the summer of 91. Stayed with the regiment through mid-96, went to Fort Rucker after that as a special operations aviation liaison. And as it just turned out in 97, I made a decision to get into the civilian world and, and get out of the Army. So over the course of the last 25 years, which is hard to say, <laughs> but right now I serve as a vice president of business development at AVEX Aerospace. So I'm still in the aviation industry as a business developer, but my times at Fort Campbell and the regiment you know, made me who I am. It sounds to me from the research I've been doing and, and talking to you gentlemen before today that it's not something you just do and walk away from. It really mm -hmm. becomes part of the fiber of your being. Mm -hmm. I uh, agree with that. that totally. Like it. Now, you were a commissioned officer. I was a commissioned officer. And Stan Wood, you were a warrant officer. Correct. All right. So tell us about your background and the path that you had and how long you stayed and what you're doing now. Yep. Grew up in central Pennsylvania, Lewisburg. Go Green Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> if we're making a plug for it. Yeah. <laughs> Really was uh, first occupation I could have chosen was being a mountain man, but that was basically unrealistic. Read a couple of books, uh, Northwest Passage and those devils in baggy pants, and decided I wanted to be a, a airborne ranger. So enlisted, went to the second range battalion, did four years there, met my wife, got married, and decided I'd take on a different job. Uh, went to flight school, stationed in Panama from there, uh, came back from Panama to the Fifth Special Forces Group had a flight platoon at that point in time. We were at Fort Campbell, met some folks from the 160th, and decided I'd give an assessment there. Went over to the 160th and did uh, five years in the uh, organization before I moved on. Had a few other assignments in the Army uh, in Germany and uh, back in the States, and then uh, retired in a little over 30 years. Immediately started a company with uh, two other guys that Spent some time with, anyhow, in the Army in the 160th. And the company's name is Fulcrum Concepts. We're an aerospace engineering company these days. Okay. And uh, been in business since 2008, just before I retired. Well, Stan, even before we talk about the 160th, help me understand something I've never understood, which might be difficult because I'm a Navy guy, so use small words, please. <laughs> but a Ranger versus just a Mark One motto, foot soldier, is it just... Something like there's extra training or you have a specialty or what makes a person a ranger versus just a typical soldier? Well, it's a volunteer organization for sure. So okay. you volunteer to come into the Army these days, then you have to volunteer to go to jump school and you have to volunteer to go to the Ranger Battalion. And they're elite light infantry is really okay. uh, what we start off as raid, recon and ambush. That was our primary bread and butter. Later on, uh, after the first rescue attempt in Iran, the Desert One security was conducted by the 1st Ranger Battalion. 2nd Ranger Battalion got into that business, been trained by the 1st Ranger Battalion, so we started doing airfield seizures and some other specialty work. Today, they've advanced well beyond that and uh, well-resourced, packed full of light, strong young men <laughs> who are looking to do the best job that they possibly can. Great regiment. There's three battalions these days, and they've been very active in the global war on terrorism. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. So getting back to the 160th, Trey, I'll look at you here. Sure. So again, right, we have to kind of use Hollywood because that's what most people sure. have seen. And in the film, you see Blackhawks, you see mm -hmm. Little Birds, rather, mm -hmm. with folks hanging out the side, mm -hmm. doing crazy stuff. 
But for the layperson, what is the 160th? Uh, the 160th is what I would call the U.S. military's premier special operations aviation resource that supplies airlift and close air support for the nation's special operators. I guess that's the best way to kind of describe it in a nutshell. And, you know, in the regular Army, we have aviation brigades that support assigned units, such as the 101st Aviation Brigade will support the 101st Air Assault Division, right, to move their soldiers around the battlefield. Um, the unique thing about the 160th is they service the entire Joint Special Operations community and serve as their reliable airlift to get them where they need to go with a motto of plus or minus 30 seconds. So, you know, it is that precise and also provide the necessary long haul, close air support under goggles, you know, in the midst of darkness under all kinds of conditions. So that's who they service. They are at the nation's beck and call. And as we used to say, we will be anywhere in four hours. That's who the regiment is in a nutshell. And so movies like um, Lone Survivor, which was what, Operation Red Wing? Was that an MH-47 that uh, came to their rescue? And then was that from the 160th? Yeah, I don't have the details on that one. Stan would definitely be the best one to Sure, but your point is, SEALs, Rangers, Army Special Forces, it's across all the uh, communities and all the branches. Okay, and Stan, where did this get its start? Now, you mentioned a little bit ago, kind of started in failure maybe, but what's the background on this, Reg? Right, it was the uh, lack of a cohesive aviation support element, really, that came out of the first attempt to rescue the hostages in Iran. And there was a gap identified at that point in time. And so they put together the organization out of the uh, 101st and then later formed it into the 160th Special Operations. Well, initially it was a group and then then became a regiment. And this was in now, what, 77, I think, was the overthrow-ish? 80. And as Stan said, it was born out of the 101st. You know, I had to go back and just get some of my history right here. But, <laughs> you know, after the Desert One disaster, obviously Stan was talking about there were some things that the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to maintain in terms of capability. And they realized that there was not a cohesive ability to respond to international crises, hostage rescue. And so out of that came, hey, we're going to try this again. And in fact, shortly thereafter, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff moved out to carve out helicopters and personnel out from the 101st to do it again. There was a lot on the table. Were we going to go the Navy Marine route again? And the decision was, nope. We tried the Navy Marine route. didn't work. They weren't going to go the Air Force route in terms of forming this unit because with the Air Force comes a long logistical train. They just didn't feel like that would suffice for the quick reaction. Got to get somewhere quick. And so what they did was they carved out a company of Blackhawks, a company of Chinooks. Then they went and found some Little Birds and formed this unit at Fort Campbell that became what was known as Task Force 160 in October of 1981. And they were going to go do Iran again, right? They were on the hook. They had been practicing for it. It was called Operation Honey Badger. And once the regiment got formed, Ronald Reagan got put into office. Hostages are released. Honey Badger got put on a shelf. And the next thing you know, a capability had been stood up that did not exist until then. Make a long story short, the helicopters and the people did not go back to the 101st. They stayed there as part of the now Task Force 160 and formed this amazing capability that led us to where we are today. 
So because it was successful and a proven capability to a degree, and we could talk about some of the conflicts where it has been involved, it just continued to grow and develop and, and build. Yes. Yeah, okay. Now, this might be a dumb question, Stan, but uh, I'm full of them, so bear with me. <laughs> Why have something like this? Why not just say, hey, when we need someone, and again, I guess we can talk about the uh, debacle in the desert, but could we not just take regular army units and say, hey, we need you to go do this mission? Or is it something where you need someone who's specially trained day in and day out? Well, the personnel are really what it boils down to. Because okay. in the army, army aviation, bar none, and this is clearly just my opinion, but <laughs> is the best army aviation support in the world, best collection of pilots. The 160th pilots, there's a lot of great 160th pilots, there's no doubt. But not everybody in the Army, there's a lot of great guys that decide they don't want to be part of the 160th for whatever reason. There's a lot of unique capability in Army aviation. And then there's just a lot more asked out of the guys in the 160th. You have to have the right mindset. And that's why they go through a selection program to make sure that they're psychologically ready to do this, they're physically ready to do it, that they have the fundamental skills that are looked upon for the demands they're going to be placed in. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's up to, to yeah. that task. And it takes a lot of commitment to, to be able to do that. And guys that spend the majority of their career there, 15, 20, 25 years, actively engaged in combat operations, is such a phenomenal amount of accumulated wealth of uh, tactical information that it's just amazing what they can do. I don't know if it was true or not, but you would sometimes see it on like a TV show or Hollywood or whatever. And maybe not so much these days, but maybe in the 70s or 80s, you know, the judge would be sitting up there looking at a young man and say, either join the army or go to jail, right? And so my question here is, whether that's true or not, you don't have to necessarily address, but I feel like maybe the army has a pretty broad spectrum of some people that maybe just come in because they want to pay for college or maybe they just feel like they want to serve, but they don't really want to oorah, go all the way, do something amazing. But then you've got this batch that kind of rises to the top or loves the idea of the challenge. So is that assessment fair, Stan? Is there a pretty broad spectrum of people that come into the army and I'm guessing the 160th attracts the ones that really love a challenge and just read from the creed. I mean, that's above and beyond, it sounds like. There is a broad spectrum. Uh, There was a broad (laughs) spectrum when I was in the Rangers. Oftentimes, uh, you had everything from a guy that could be a doctor to a guy that's a mass murderer. A little (laughs) exaggeration there. At the end of the day, there was a very broad and diverse group of people that were part of that organization. And the exact same thing is found in a lot of the elite organizations where you have a very broad and diverse and really interesting group of people. They're quite the uh, problem solvers and they just want a challenge because everything's another volunteer organization. They're Mm -hmm. moving, you know, they volunteer in the army. They volunteer to go somewhere else. Uh, They volunteer to go to flight school and then they volunteer to get into some of the special mission units like the the 160th because they're continuing to seek a challenge. And they'll get a challenge in the in the 160th, there's no doubt about that. I bet. Only other thing I'd add, I think when you really think about why do we need this capability, the one thing, another thing I think that sets the 160th apart is the community and the relationship capital expended throughout the community over years. You know, the 160th is an intensely customer-centric organization, right? I mean, we they realize they are there to support the ground force and the operators that do their work. As such, you live with the ground force, you eat with the ground force. And it's the same people over and over. And you build relationships with the guys on the ground. So it's not just a guy on the radio that you've never met before. 
These are bonds and relationships that get developed over the course of years of training together. So it is a very uniquely oriented organization. Would you agree with that, Stan? Oh, uh, yeah, for yeah, sure. So, for instance, Stan, he's got long relationships with end customers that he's had in existence for years because he flew them, he lived with them, he ate with them. And that is the tight-knitness of the community that allows you to execute at the level that you're executing to, mm -hmm. right? It's hard to take a regular army unit and say, we need you to be somewhere in four hours and support this customer. It just doesn't exist. You have to live, breathe, eat with the folks. And the amount of training that goes on over the course of time is it's off the charts. Well, and the term customer is kind of interesting, right? Because you could interpret a lot of different things there. But essentially... You're supporting, like you said, folks on the ground, but could a combatant commander also be, a, in effect, a customer or a regional person? In other words, your unit has very special capabilities. So are you ever called like, hey, we need this here, bring them here, and this is a general or a flag officer perhaps asking, that kind of thing? Well, it gets back into whole operational planning, right? I mean, um, we are or the 160th is designed to support special operations forces, right. and they are the customers, period. Yeah. Right. They are an instrument of military strategy that can be used wherever a general's just not going to say hey we need these guys it's just i mean that's just not the course of planning right but to understand at least from my view you have to look at it as a whole from the special operations capability the 160th presents a specific capability that is an enabler of the customers on the ground that allow them to do their job yeah stan when I think about the Navy SEALs, of course, sea, air, land, right? So they do a lot of different things, but they're not going to be pilots, at least rated pilots. Are the Night Stalkers different in the regiment? Are there troopers, pilots, mechanics, administrative maybe even, or are some of those support organizations? Who could hold the title Night Stalker? Well, everybody that goes to the unit ends up being a Night Stalker because they do have a specific group of tasks along the way. So there's mechanics, there's everybody there. There's refuelers, there's mechanics, there's ammo handlers, all the logistics, medics, doctors, psychologists. It's a wide, diverse group of people that support this group of aviators that end up going out and do the mission. But there's a lot of times where like the ammo handlers and the refuelers and whatnot, you know, they'll go forward, they'll have to provide their own security. So they're trained to do all those tasks to jump, refuel, rearm capability to afford remote location, pull security, and establish that point for their aircraft to come back to. So there's a whole diverse group of people, and every one of them is a Night Stalker. But you're not going to come off the street, so is the most junior Night Stalker maybe an E3 or 4? Or, or how? Yeah, probably somewhere around there. I, is there I don't know. either regimental commander? I don't know what you would call that person, but what what's that rank? Yeah, regimental commander is uh, 06, or captain, Navy terms, but, yeah, uh, but colonel. Yeah, 07, okay. colonel. And uh, generally speaking, he's made his way through the ranks, is very familiar with the organization. Sure. Not many people come in at the battalion commander level, having never been in the regiment. So there's a level of understanding and uh, education that you, know, you get from obviously rising up through the ranks. But... There are four battalions at these days, uh, so guys get a pretty diverse opportunity. Gotcha. Uh, and that colonel could go on to general officer, but he or she will be in some different position, not necessarily in the eight, 160th. That's something yeah. higher than that. So okay. in the Army now, we do have the U.S. 
Army Special Operations Aviation folks down at Fort Bragg. It's generally somebody out of the regiment. It's always been somebody out of the regiment that moves up the uh, one-star general rank and commands from down there. But as the name implies, right, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment Airborne, I'm guessing vehicles only as required, but probably no, like, personnel carriers, main battle tanks. Yeah, they're not infantry uh, sorts. Everything there is to support the regiment and its aviation mission. They may have unique, uh, like a crane or something along those lines that will help assemble an aircraft that's been broken down for transport, but no armed personnel carriers. Gotcha. And Trey, coming back to you, you already alluded to some of these before, but what are some of the aircraft the regiment either flies or flew? Mm-hmm. And uh, in a little bit, we've got some listener questions sure. about what may fly in the future. Sure. Of course, none of us know that. But. Sure. The regiment flies three different airplanes, basically, three separate platforms. Or now it's four since they've got an unmanned version now. But from a flying perspective, man flying perspective, they fly two variants of the MH6, which is the, uh, we call them Little Birds. They fly the MH6, which is a slick version of the Little Bird. It's designed to carry special operations guys on planks sitting on the side of the aircraft and is able to get them into small places, either through a fast rope off the aircraft itself or into a very confined space. The arm version is designed for close air support, mainly focusing on 7.62 guns and 2.75 rockets in terms of close air support. They have some other capability, but for the most part, that's pretty much standard fare. From the Black Hawk perspective, we have two variants of the Black Hawk. One is the assault version, which has area refuel probes so they can go long distances and get gas in the air. And basically, that is your troop hauler that is designed to get guys to where they need to get to either via fast rope or, you know, putting them on the ground somewhere. The direct action penetrator is the arm version of the Black Hawk, which is designed to have, uh, again, just carry a lot of stuff, a lot of rockets, and a lot of just 7.6 to a 30 millimeter. Um, things have changed a bit, Stands, I guess it's pretty much the same, right, in terms of armament? Yeah, everything continues to evolve, but, those, you know, that's the bread and butter right okay. there. Yeah. And then uh, on the uh, on the heavy lift side, we have the CH-47, again, with air refuel probes, which uh, the customers absolutely love because it can carry a small third-world nation and go a long way at night, you know, so the customers absolutely love them. So those are the main platforms that the regiment currently uses to employ operators around the world. And um, they've mastered that craft over many years of maintaining them, moving them, and flying them. I'll bet. So when I was in the Navy, I was in an air wing with multiple different aircraft, but I flew the F-18. That was my mm-hmm. qualification. Other pilots flew the E-2 Hawkeye, let's say. Mm-hmm. Is an MH-47 pilot an MH-47 pilot? He's not going to go from that one day to a Blackhawk the next day and a Little Bird the day after, or is it? Some guys do shift from one aircraft to another. Like in different tours or like in the same tour? Well, when you're there 20 years, it's over the course. Of, not everybody gets to stay there that long, but pretty much from the warrant officer perspective, as long as you're a contributing member to what's going on and you're still willing to rise to the occasion, uh, the demands of the job, you can be there that long. So there were folks that were little bird pilots I know that came over to be Blackhawk pilots. Not a lot. Same with the Chinook. Some guys out of the Blackhawks went over to the Chinooks and vice versa. And there's even a few little bird guys that went over and, and flew Chinooks. But for the most part, you become, yeah. I, I equate a lot of times to being in the Rangers from an aviation perspective, you become the expert in the aircraft that you fly. Sure. And there's a lot of different tasks that you have to be very proficient at that have to do with prepping your aircraft for transport through all the different tasks that are going to be asked for you for the different mission scenarios. So 
it really takes a lot of effort over the course of time as a new guy to really get the fundamentals down. And so that tends to stay tracked for a period of time before you move on. Yeah. Is there one that is sort of regarded as the cream of the crop? Like the of course, the arm black hawk, the daps. Is that what you flew? <laughs> I did fly that. I flew Blackhawks the, okay. the whole time I was there. And, All right. uh, Trey, what did you fly? I was, I was a dap guy as well. Yeah, he was my boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't seen him reach over and hit you yet, so that's good. So the MH6 and the AH6, uh, not very familiar with those, but I have to do it. So that aircraft is adapted from a civilian helicopter, right? And isn't that basically the helicopter from Magnum PI? Come on, remember that show? Pretty much. Pretty much. I forget I, what that's called. That's not like a Belljet Ranger. That's like the 57s, but... OH-6. Well, we, in our OH-6, call them loaches. Uh, that seems to be the term of endearment that okay. goes back to Vietnam days. That aircraft is a Vietnam-era aircraft to up-to-date standards, right? Mm -hmm. And when they initially formed the 160th, they specifically chose that air platform because one, it had tremendous success in Vietnam as part of a Cobra Loach gunship called a pink team. It can get in tight spots. It's like, as the book says, it's like riding a motorcycle. It, you know, it can do 120 knots and turn on a dime. And I think that it just evolved over time in terms of how they used it with the 160th. When they were forming the regiment, they were looking for a platform that could do all those things. And in the inventory at the time was a 58 and a 6, and they chose to go after the 086s that were owned by the Mississippi Air National Guard. And that's kind of how it all came into existence. So currently, I don't even know what the model number is. It's MD-500, I guess, to some degree is what the civilian nomenclature would be, I guess, right, Stan? But we call them MHAH-6. But that you're correct. It is the Magnum PI uh, aircraft. <laughs> All right. It's easy for me too, but I, I blame it on the viewers. Like, oh yeah, you've seen this in Black Hawk Down mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, Magnum PI, mm -hmm. but that's just where my brain goes. Right. So let's talk about from the street to Night Stalker. Does a person come in, join the regular army, get trained there and then get selected? Or would they go to the Night Stalkers and then become, because the regular army, right, doesn't fly the AH or MH6? Yeah, they, they don't. The equivalent was essentially for the Army at the time was the uh, Arm Scout helicopter, which is the Kiowa Warrior, which is no longer in the inventory anymore. So there are no real aircraft of that size. But no, you when you go through your selection process, you're assessed for partly needs of the regiment. So once you're selected to come to the organization, go to A or B company, then they'll do all your training when you get into the uh, pipeline. Okay. And you learn to fly from there. And so at any, I'm guessing, position, or I don't know if you use the term MOS, but any job that there's a need for, there will be applicants. Is it difficult to find applicants or is there more than we need kind of thing? Honestly, I have no idea where they stand today on the recruiting side of things. I think the Army overall at the moment is having a bit of a challenge on uh, on recruiting. And as much as we've spent at war for the last sure. uh number of years you got to get a guy that decides yeah this is what i want to do I, right. I still want more of that right. uh, to come on board so i don't know what the answer to it is i imagine they're certainly getting recruits but i couldn't tell you where okay and then for example buds is pretty famous for starting a class of 140 candidates and uh, maybe 20 or 30 graduate and become seals is attrition pretty high do you recall i mean again if you don't know these days that's fine but maybe during your experiences did you remember was there much attrition when i went through green platoon we didn't lose anybody out of the okay. blackhawk side of things 
several guys that didn't make it through the Little Bird uh, Green Platoon. <laughs> At the time, everything was run out of the companies, so it was a company-led effort to put you through training. Nowadays, they have a unique, dedicated training battalion that takes care of things. So. Okay. And Green Platoon is sort of the name of the process? That's, or? that's where you start, right? Okay. Uh, but, I, you know... The difference between, I think, Buds and, and Green Platoon is the selection process weeds a ton of people out, right? So when folks come to Green Platoon, not from necessarily from the enlisted side, but from the warrant officer and officer side, they've already been to a selection process that has been pretty rigorous, and it sets them up for success, really. I mean, they've got a track record. They've been through a rigorous assessment process where they're like, this guy or gal will fit in with this organization and has what it takes. The Green Platoon is not a weeding out process. The Green Platoon is we need to get you trained, you know, from the standpoint where we're seeing, you know, 50% attrition in a ranger school or buds. It's just not the same because they've already attained a level of expertise and their background is such that's going to, you're hitting the mark when you show up. So, you know, a lot of times folks that don't make it from the officer side or warrant officer side is typically just due to flight skills. Now, once you make it, though, is it the kind of thing most people want to stay because they get to like it? I mean, I, I've got to think the schedule is pretty difficult. At least it uh, seems like from the outside, if you're on call, got to be somewhere within four hours. And I'm sure they split up who's on call, whatever. But can you make a career there or do you do a tour and then go somewhere else? From a warrant officer's perspective, you, I mean, there, literally there were guys that came before me and they're still there. There did 20 years of some pretty hard living. But when I left... I left because it was a very challenging time after Mogadishu. And then the following year, I spent a ton of time gone. And I had several young children at that point in time. It was just a time we needed to take a break. What I needed was like maybe six months of a break. I didn't want to leave because I didn't know where else to go <laughs> that I would be that fulfilled in what it was that I was doing in the Army. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed my time there. Yeah. And so guys can go there and spend a lot of time. The commission side is different. On the commission side, again, the assessment's the same. We all volunteer to go do something a little, you know, as I would say, get married to the regiment and do something pretty special with a bunch of special people. But from the commissioned officer side, you're going to float in and out of the regiment over the course of time. And what I mean by that is typically captains will roll in as a platoon leader. You'll do your time in the companies being on the operational side. If you're successful there, you're going to move up to staff somewhere and be an operations or plans officer or some sort of customer liaison person. So you're going to do probably four or five years on your first assignment, and then you got to go away. And you're either going to fill some other sort of special operations, aviation, professional development position somewhere, right? And then you'll go do your schooling like all officers got to go to school, you know, when they're that part of their 03 career. Mm-hmm. And then some will come back to the regiment right? And be a company commander. And then they'll do their time and they'll move up to staff again. And then they'll step away for a couple of years to do other professional development or broadening assignments because you're still in the army and you have to still do those things that it takes to keep you competitive with your peers. Because even though you are living a different life and doing something a little different, you still got to get promoted. I mean, the regular army requirements do not change. So while Stan and his colleagues can stay there for years. I mean, literally, we'll make a career out of it. The commissioned officers have to weave in and out of the regular Army process, but get brought up in that special operations community. So they have the expertise and the relationships to be able to navigate that, but they won't spend 20 years at Fort Campbell or wherever 
it is. They're going to have to move up just like everybody else right. does and compete with the regular Army Upper aviators. Yeah. Right. Isn't that part of the benefit of the warrant officer program? High school, the flight school, and just fly the whole time? Well, it, it sort of is, although I, I do like to make folks uh, aware that, hey, you're, you're an officer in the United States Army. That's your primary yeah. job. And then you're just flying. But, yeah, you do have the opportunity to maintain that skill levels in the cockpit to do the unit mission. Good. Well, I want to ask you about your involvement in the Battle of Mogadishu and uh, how accurate you feel Black Hawk Down is. Before we get to that, I never saw Zero Dark Thirty, so I don't know if that applies to the conversation. I didn't see mm -hmm. it, so I can't speak to it. But before we hone in on Black Hawk Down, are there other places? I'm sure there's a lot of books, and I think you mentioned that earlier, Stan. But are there other movies or other references in media or Hollywood where the 160th has showcased itself? I mean, Black Hawk Down is probably the most known movie, at least from my perspective. Okay. I, mean, I don't know if Stan's aware of anything else. Movie-wise, that's really the yeah. only one I'd, yeah. I'd say. Mike Durant wrote a uh, couple of books. One of them's in the Company of Heroes. Talks a lot about uh, various personalities in the regiment. And, of course, the Black Hawk Down book. Remind us a, who Mike Durant is. Mike was the guy that was uh, captured in the Battle of Mogadishu when his aircraft got shot down. He was call sign Super 6-4. Everybody else was killed uh, on his aircraft, his fellow crew members. And Gordon and Shugart were two ground guys that were sent in to try and rescue Mike or anybody there, secure that site. And uh, they were killed defending him. Mm. Mike was captured and then 12 days later released back to us. He was also my Green Platoon instructor, so we became pretty good friends right? when I was going through yeah. uh, Green Platoon. The book was great. I did read it. I thought the movie did a nice job of representing the book. And so we see Shugart, I think it is, right? And Gordon, like you yeah. said, who, uh, according to the movie, hey, put us in. We want to go. And uh, it doesn't really show Durant getting repatriated, but I think it's maybe in the uh, text at the end or something. But So I guess we're talking to you, Stan. Let's keep with you. What was your involvement and... Tell us about, again, if you can draw parallels to the movie, because that's maybe what most viewers of this video and uh, those who are listening have seen. But what was your role and how well did they do depicting it on the silver screen? So there's a lot of 160th involvement in the production of the movie. So in the actual filming. Yeah, there were guys, the regiment was represented there by people from all the different participants in the battle. The intensity level was definitely captured once it got into the intensity of the battle. I mean, the thing raged on for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, my role was I was uh, flying one of the ranger blocking positions. Call sign was Super 66. And on the actual assault that day, we were in the southwest corner right next to the objective, putting in ranger blocking position next to the Olympic Hotel. And later that night, I ended up doing a resupply mission. Once they were consolidated at that point in time up at the first crash site. So got shot up pretty good at that. Uh, you did? Our you, aircraft. You and your aircraft? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, but we're able to make it back to the airfield. And, and then pretty much my participation was done okay. uh, for the day. But I think you have to understand, uh, you know, as part of, you know, Stan's not going to, he needs to embellish a little bit in exactly what he was resupplying, right? You know, we had customers pinned down. It was an ugly firefight. And we had guys on the ground that were injured and needed medical supplies and other supplies to keep them going. Basically, Stan was called to go back and 
push some stuff in the back of his aircraft and asked to go deliver those supplies. And I want to say it was still daylight stand, wasn't it? No. It was night. Okay. It was still <laughs> night. It was night and go basically into the middle of the firefight and get on top of the customer and just start shoveling stuff out to them. And so Stan earned a silver star that day for that particular act of heroism. Wow. And 30 years later, which was last October, his crew chief's got distinguished flying crosses as well. So, nice. uh, you know, awards made 30 years later to recognize the act. But uh, that was one of several acts of heroism, I think, that were exhibited by the regiment that day. We had actual five aircraft shot out of the sky that day. You know, one's, one's depicted in the movie, which is the Black Hawk Down piece. The second aircraft was Mike Durant's aircraft, which Stan talked about. Super 6-2, which was also piloted by Jimmy Cohn and Mike Cofino, were in a holding pattern above the Olympic Hotel with a customer sniper in the back, and they took an RPG round to the door gunner window, and Mike was able to make that aircraft back to the port, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, ripped the side of the aircraft off. I see that's three of them. Stan had about, I don't know how many bullet holes, but basically he was ready to go back out, and his crew chief said, Stan had a few choice words for him after the crew. She said, we can't go, sir. The aircraft's, uh, we got no oil. Whistling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we took a bullet, and uh, the one that was most obvious was uh, the one that went into the input module on the left-hand side. So all the oil was pumping out there. I, I got to make a small correction here. I did, I did not get the silver star for that uh, particular. It was a distinguished flying cross. Okay. <laughs> but thanks for upgrading it. <laughs> Still impressive <laughs> by my standards. But <laughs> yeah, sorry okay. about that. Well, the interesting thing about it, I'll just tell the whole resupply story. So we'd watched this thing go down during the course of the day, Cliff getting shot down. Cliff mm-hmm. and I flew together as a crew in the first Gulf War, all of the missions we did over there, uh, DAP missions. And so we were all very tight. Our whole platoon was very tight, but he was a DAP guy. He was flying Explain with DAP real quick, sir. a defensive arm penetrator. Okay. Today, I think we're calling it a direct action penetrator. Arm Blackhawk. Yeah, arm gotcha. Blackhawk. But he was flying with a guy by the name of Donovan Briley, also from the second platoon or DAP platoon. They were the first crew shot down. And that's where everybody put their focus on that one. The next thing was... Mike comes in to replace Super 6-1, and he's in Super 6-4. And Mike was a second platoon guy, and he was flying with a guy by the name of Ray Frank. And those guys were the second one shot down. Then Super 6-4, Dan Gelata comes in. So the rest of us were all, and he was with Herb Rodriguez, our company commander. Everybody else was sitting north of the city just flying circles because there was really nothing we could do. There was no PZ in and around that area. So Blackhawks couldn't do really anything at that point in time. And then Super 6-2 comes in and in Phil and Gordon and Sugar at Mike's crash site. And then they get hit by an RPG, like uh, Trey said. Another phenomenal story. And so finally it turns dark and everybody's consolidated up or making their way up to the first crash site. And... We get called by the tank commander who says, hey, we need to do a resupply. And so head back to the airfield, land, uh, pick up a couple of guys, ground guys from Task Force Ranger, put the resupply stuff on board. And then they come along uh, with us to do the resupply. As we're flying back up to get into position, I don't have any idea where we're going at this point in time. I just know the aircraft's been shot down. People have been moving. There's several aircraft, obviously, that have been shot down. Two, I know, are back. One's at the airport. One's at the 
port. The other two are down in the city somewhere. Durant's has been overrun. We're at Super 6-1 is where we're going to go. But I don't know where. And when you look at an overhead of Mogadishu, it's a very compact city. And uh, it's just, you know, urban combat's a challenge. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of blind spaces that uh, you never get a chance unless you're sitting right over top of it. So I've been asking for, hey, where am I going? Where am I going? I get up into position as I'm flying into uh, my holding pattern up there north of the town. Or the battalion commander is flying south. Their aircraft needed, that's a C-2 aircraft. They needed gas, and so we're heading back to refuel. C-2 command and control. Yep. So I get up there. They handed control off to my company commander, a guy by the name of Herb Rodriguez, excellent commander and uh, he had been in the csar combat search and rescue aircraft that had brought in and gotten shot up already that day by an rpg and it had to go back and swap out all their equipment into the only spare we had once he took off the airfield he flew down to the port to get the injured guys and do a medevac of those guys up to the hospital and then he ended up showing up back on site site so report hey I'm here with the resupply. And he says, Roger, execute. <laughs> and uh, I just remember it to this day, it's just like, yeah, but where am I going? <laughs> where, where am I taking this thing? And so problem solving, you know, right there on the spot, the folks that had the best situational awareness are back at the far getting gas. One of the little bird flight leads heard the discussion. And he said, hey, when I fly over top of the location, I'll put my IR searchlight, turn it on. So we're a little over a mile away at this point in time. We're doing our patterns. He says, okay, searchlight's on now. And he turned the searchlight on, and you had to have goggles on to be able to see it. So that gave us an azimuth, anyhow, to where we're going. And then the next thing was, hey, your near-term recognition signal is going to be a guy with a strobe light. Not given a whole heck of a lot of thought to the strobe light aspect of things, but the challenges of the city, the angle that I was coming in, we just happened to be on a perfect angle that would allow me to see this searchlight. But as we're coming in, flying about 80 knots, one of the aircraft in a high orbit took a what's called a command laser pointer, which is an IR light, very narrow focus. You may be familiar with those. Mm -hmm and put it down on top of the building, got my attention, and then I saw the guy with the strobe light, and I knew exactly where we were going. I was flying with a guy by the name of Gary Fuller that day, and Scott Hargis was our crew chief on the left-hand side. Ned Norton was flying on the right-hand side, and I was in the right front seat. We came in and got as low as we could possibly get, as quickly as we could get there. And I just remember I was flying, Gary was backing me up on the controls, and I just remember looking at the rotor blades, and it felt like they were like four or five feet above the roof of the building. The guys in the back were kicking the stuff out. We started taking fire. The right door gun opened up uh, for a very short period of time. And then somebody made a radio call, hey, you're taking fire. And that's all I could hear because the left minigun, uh, Scott Hargis opened up with uh, the minigun, right? It has two or 4,000 rounds a minute. He went right to 4,000 rounds a minute. And as it turned out, there were three guys that were on our left-hand side just filling us in with rifle fire. He let off the trigger. Somebody said, good shooting. And <laughs> and then we took off from there, resupply complete, and we took off. And we knew we'd been hit, but none of the instruments indicated we were having any problem with the aircraft. Mm -hmm. 
the up from the guys in the back was one guy grazed in the neck. One of the other guys, the crew chief on the right side, he took a little nick on the uh, thumb on the right. And then we flew back one to drop the operators off that were on board the aircraft. And the other one was to assess the aircraft damage. And uh, when we came in on short final, put the collective down. And about the same time that happened, the crew chief said, sir, there's oil all over the place back here. And it had come in and the whole inside the aircraft was uh, covered with oil. And as soon as I lowered the collective, the transmission oil pressure went straight down. And so we taxied back over to where our headquarters were and uh, shut the aircraft down at that point in time. Pat Powers, our uh, platoon sergeant, later told me, and that's where he says, "Well, it's a good thing you didn't go back out there. You know, it ha- were you able to? Because there was some damage in the tail that was unseen. We had about forty bolt holes in the aircraft. Forty, wow! But the majority of it was the back half of the aircraft. And is that because so, the enemy knew to target the tail rotor, maybe? Or no, I think uh, it's out? typically uh, there's you can read stories about Vietnam and whatnot, is where a lot of the damage is because just trying to shoot a moving target doesn't always work out so well for you. And, yeah. <laughs> okay. Did that aircraft, I presume, fly again, but it took a it while? It did. Not there. I mean, it had to be evacuated. Oh, they did? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. But it, it got put back into service. Well, yeah. As Blackhawk, I was always a, uh, a Blackhawk fan because it was my aircraft right straight out of flight <clears> school, <throat> went to the Blackhawk transition. But that day just proved the war horse that it is. It's very much the combat aircraft. Nice. Yeah, in fact, the the other thing he was talking about was uh, Major Rodriguez and Dan Gelada in Super Six Eight, which was the CSAR aircraft. They'd actually uh, they had PJ customers in the back, and you know when Six One went down, and you know they were trying to figure out where the aircraft was and how to get folks in there. Dan was called in, and Major Rod were called in to fast rope and deploy the PJs in the vicinity of Super Six One, and in the middle of the fast rope letting the guys down out of the aircraft at their hover. Um, he took a RPG probably right around the main rotor mast, I guess. It was damn near close, wasn't it, Stan? It was about six feet out, but right right through the blade. Yeah, and was able to keep the hover, get the guys on the ground, and as Stan said, go back and reload another aircraft and make that the next CSAR aircraft. So out of the eight Blackhawks that were involved that day, five of them uh, had a rough day. Which is again, you'll you'll see part of the movie that we'll talk about. Obviously, the Black Hawk Down aircraft, mm-hmm. um, and also with Mike's aircraft. But the other three, we took some heavy hits that day. Yeah. Well, you have the microphone trade. What was your role that day? Or yeah, I was flying with Jerry Izzo. I was Super Six Five. Um, we had Chalk Two of the Ranger Blocking Force, and basically, as Stan talks about what Rangers do, I would say they always evolve into the security component of securing objectives so customers can do the work they got to do at the time they were definitely the they were the blocking position they controlled access into the objective area okay so the operators who were going in to make the arrest can do their thing and not have to worry about the objective getting overrun by uh, the enemy or outside uh, forces i was super six five with jerry Izzo, and we had chalk two ranger team which is a component of about a dozen guys and our job was to basically fast rope the rangers down on top of their security objective or their site. And as Jerry Izzo says, hey, in the movie, the, you know, our claim to fame is you hear Chalk 2 out or whatever, Super 6-5 clear, <laughs> you know, because basically after the first infill, you know, everybody's on the objective. Mm-hmm. 
we got a team of four Blackhawks. You got two over the site doing orbits, providing overwatch security for the overwatch of the Olympic Hotel as the customers are doing their work. And then four Blackhawks, which takes a security team, we exit the area and go into a holding pattern about a mile north of the city. Right. And we're just waiting for our call to come back in either to exfil and pick up our guys or missions over. This was on our sixth or seventh mission. The template had worked and then things just started going haywire. So we're in the middle of a holding pattern out there, you know, a mile of the city waiting for things to happen. Super six, one goes down. Colonel Matthews calls in super six, four. So if you imagine everything's in a sequence of a name, right? Six, four, six, five, six, six, and six, seven is our, is our Ranger blocking force Blackhawk formation. So you got four Blackhawks just doing circles out there North of the city, waiting for either our call for an exfil or whatever's going to happen. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. At the time, we're just boring holes in the sky. And until Colonel Matthews calls uh, Stan and 6-6 to go do the resupply mission. So that left, when he was done, there was just two of us left. 6-5, which was my and Jerry's aircraft, mm-hmm. and 6-7, which would have been with Jeff Nicholas and Sam Champ. <laughs> and basically, we were just trying to get back into the fight. You know, you try to make the request to go in there. But uh, after losing so much, risk factor had gone extremely high. And basically, we're, we bore holes in the sky for about 12 hours, just waiting, you know, throughout the night, just trying to try to find a way to get back into the fight. At the end, you know, when the, everybody had secured at the stadium, then, you know, we were able to provide some of the relief to get some of the forces back to the airfield. But uh, like I said, out of, I can't explain why Two aircraft left were untouched, mine and Jerry's and uh, in 6-7. We were the only guys that didn't have a scratch yet. Hmm. Guys on the ground saying there was RPGs and, you know, bullets flying all over the place during the whole time. So, you know, it was just one of those times, right? Hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's a pretty long evening. I think we took off around 1530, 1600, I guess, that day. Is that about right, Stan? Mm-hmm. Called it a day about 8 in the morning the next morning. So it was uh, just a long, long night. Well, your customers didn't get to rest, right? So you, no. you have the same feeling. Like, hey, right. I'm fortunate to be out here relatively safe, but That's I know right. my brothers are in there yeah. getting beat up, so I want to be available. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. In one of the in one of the books that's out there, I had to just kind of go back in some of the lore that goes along with just some of the history of the unit itself. And according to the book, I can't remember the name of the book, but they talk about the lore of the 160th and the commitment to the customers and that mm-hmm. you know, urgent fury in Grenada is what created the level of commitment that customers have known to rely on with the 160th. When they need to get picked up, you're coming to pick them up. Mm-hmm. You're not leaving them. 
And that, again, that gets to the intimacy and the relationships that exist with the ground units and the warrant officers that have been there 15 years. Yeah. I mean, they, they get to know the customers. They get to know them. And so there is a level of commitment, mm-hmm. an unspoken commitment. Speaking of that, I probably asked another question and we skipped over it. But 160th has been there since uh, at least Grenada, right? You helped me mm-hmm. out here. Panama, Desert Storm, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, do anything in the Balkans? No. we mm-hmm. uh, Actually, it's kind of interesting. Uh you know, I was platoon leader at the time, and you know the Balkans were happening between Desert Storm and Mogadishu. Right. So we were doing our operational planning, okay. uh, but never got the call to go do what we had to do. With okay. it. You know, it, yeah. it never evolved. But also missing Prime Chance, which was Ernest Well Operations in the Persian Gulf. You know, one of the challenges at the for the Navy at the time was protecting oil tankers going right. up and down the over Hormuz. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff had decided to put the 160th on a barge out there in the Persian Gulf with MHs and AHs, along with a CSAR um, UH-60. And that's how I got to know some of the guys. You know, again, back to the lore of the 160th was taking out the Iran Ajar, which was laying mines. It was an Iranian naval vessel laying mines. And, you know, the little birds out there found them and basically stopped them from laying mines, <laughs> right? And took out a whole bunch of other Boston whalers and, and ball cameras as well during the course of probably a few weeks and established a presence in the Persian Gulf. And, you know, again, back to the time of understanding night vision goggles. I mean, there were, these guys were flying 50 feet over the water, night vision goggles, 30 miles from any vessel doing their thing. And uh, at the time, the Navy and the Marines couldn't fly at night. It was just part of the the only way that they could provide armed reconnaissance was to get the 160th out there to provide that service, you know, in protection of the assets moving up and down the Strait of Hormuz. Yeah. Let's get back to Somalia. And I just have a couple of questions, but you can tell me what I, I should be asking too. Talk about customers. I guess it would be the MH6 uh, and the troopers or whatever you would call them hanging off the side. Mm. Are those night stalkers or are those going to be customers? Are they going to be rangers or? They're the customers. Okay. So the guys sitting on the benches on those MH6s. Or the customers. 160th is the airlift. But you also have your, uh, I don't know what, small arms or whatever you would call them, but you've got pistols and things with you mm-hmm. as the as the pilots, but you, you don't have the folks uh, hanging on the side. Okay. No. And then the other thing, in the movie, at the end, they show, I guess it was a 60, flying around broadcasting to Mike Durant. Mm-hmm. And you said earlier 12 days. What was, And he was a friend of yours, right? So those 12 days must have been tough. Well, our whole job was to try and figure out where he was. I mean, we knew he was alive. You know, the night of the 4th, he ended up showing up on TV. And that's the only reason we knew he was alive. And then it's like, okay, so now we have a rescue mission that we have to go do. Uh happily but where is he and so we needed to try and figure it out and a big part of that also just keep morale up uh let them know that we're thinking about him your your brotherhood we're gonna we're here for you right on that 12th day or 13th maybe was it a snatch and grab kind of thing or had they worked out a okay fine you can have him back kind of thing yeah, they, deli- yeah. They, delivered they delivered it to, <laughs> yeah. delivered it to yeah. us. Yeah. Right. yeah. And Trey, you gave me a photograph. I think you were partly uh, involved in that, weren't you? Yeah, well, they had uh, turned over Mike, I believe it was at the UN hospital, I guess is where it was. Because at the time, if you remember in Somalia, there was a humanitarian crisis going on with regards to food and mm-hmm. hunger. And the warlord who we were essentially sent in to go get was holding all the food hostage, and that's what was causing a lot of the humanitarian crisis. And as such, the UN had set up a compound in downtown Mogadishu that had a hospital, 
and there was UN troops there on the airfield itself. So when Mike got turned over, he was basically turned back over to the UN compound. I mean, he had a broken leg. He had obviously injuries from his crash. And we had been told that uh, he'd been received. So we all loaded up and, you know, got in the aircraft and flew over there to go see him. Um, Mike was there for a couple of days, I guess, until we arranged for his repatriation back to Germany. So in essence, Stan, myself, Mark Bergamo, and uh, Dan, Dan, that's right, got in one of our aircraft and we said, well, we're going to go pick him up. You know, it's our platoon. He's our guy, guy. right? We're going to go do it. And so we went and command had arranged for the, obviously the, the transfer of Mike back over to us because what we were going to do is we were going to bring him back to the airfield, which was like a one minute flight. I mean, everything was very close mm-hmm. and you know, we were going to land and we were going to go put him on his C-141 to take him back to Longstuhl, Germany to, so we can get the medical care that he need. And I can't remember if we even been briefed on all this stuff, but when we landed, there was a, you know, the C-141 was there, but along it was probably about a hundred yard, how would you say? Gauntlet. Gauntlet. <laughs> Gauntlet of Rangers and Delta operators lining, providing this path for us to carry Mike through on the stretcher from the aircraft to the back of the C-141. So the picture that I shared was me, Stan, Dan, and Mark, my, and Mike obviously holding his beret. And again, I call it, you know, there's some iconic photos that happen, you know, throughout the life of the 160. This is one of those that you will never forget certain things. You know, I will always remember walking that stretcher with Mike on it through that gauntlet of Rangers and Delta guys to the back of that 141 to get him sent home. And then I think we had a toast or something. Does that sound right? Oh, it's definitely right. (laughs) It was a no drinking tour, as is most uh, U.S deployments um but over the course of time i had uh, become aware that there was some liquor available on the compound warrant officers can sniff that stuff out like uh, nobody's business it's like a seventh <laughs> sense <laughs> well this was a special occasion okay and uh so i went and uh liberated. got myself and liberated yeah several <laughs> bottles of jack daniels enough that we could everybody got a little bit of a, a taste of yeah. uh, jack daniels and we were able to do a toast and well, isn't that truly the magic or even maybe majesty of an organization like the 160th is you do amazing things with aircraft, mm-hmm. right? You have highly trained folks that can shoot very well. You do all these different things. You can deploy in four hours like you talked mm-hmm. about, but it's, it's got to really be that brotherhood. That's probably mm-hmm. what attracts people, what keeps mm-hmm. them there, and probably mm-hmm. the two of you, again, right? I, I mentioned this earlier. You, you don't just walk away from that and it doesn't affect the rest of your careers. I, I've got to think that's really the most special thing about the unit. I would agree with that. I mean, I don't know about Stan, but for me, that is definitely what it was about for me. And, you know, when you remember certain things throughout your time there, I mean, I'm blessed to have Stan and Mike and Dan and John Maddox, Jimmy Cohn, Jerry, all these guys that were part of a family for me. But when it got to Mogadishu, you know, we were there for about 45, 60 days. I can't remember the time, you know, as, as memories fade as I get older. But, you know, I distinctly remember some memories that are very distinct that epitomized that right when we got ready to go. I mean, this was probably late August. I mean, we just got there and we got to fully operational capability in a day. And Colonel Boykin, who was the Delta Force commander, had everybody around him. He's standing on a soapbox and he goes, you know, as Delta tradition, we're going to sing God Bless America before we undergo this mission. You remember that, Stan? 
yeah. in the hangar. But yeah, it's crazy. So I mean, you remember certain things, yeah. right? And every time I'm with Bucky Burris, some celebration we. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just some of those traditions, yeah. right, that you were able to get a peek behind the curtain and be yeah. a part of, right? It was those things stick with you, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. But that snapshot in time certainly cemented relationships amongst all of us, but we were all close before we even got there because, yeah. you know, we spent more times with each other than we did with our families over the course of time. I mean, it was what it was. Mm -hmm. You train hard, you're gone a lot, that's what you're signing up for. Yeah. Right. And we talk about the brotherhood, and earlier you made a reference to the rangers as men or guys. In the 160th, is it still males? Uh, the SEALs are still males. I don't know about the rangers, but what is it, the 160th? It's mostly guys, but there's uh, some females that have joined the organization, gone through selection, you right. know, the assessment process. There's several women that have gone through ranger school and successfully okay. completed it. Right. And, uh, quite frankly, there's a lot of badass women out there oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, who could kick the ass of uh, <laughs> yeah. some of our elite warriors. At yeah. the end of the day, they're courageous and want to do a good mm -hmm. job. Yeah. And I have three daughters, so in my household, there's always a course of discussion that I really don't want to get into. Uh, <laughs> into there now, or but, here? Uh, no, there I have to, but, uh, but even there I want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I've had a very fulfilled life and nobody's told me really, no, you can't do this. Right. And that's what I want for my daughters. But then there's situations where it'll all be posted. So you want them to be able to do this? I'm like, no. And it's not because of them. It's the guys that would be the problem, you yeah. know, in the sort of thing. Yeah. But from a brotherhood standpoint and brotherhood and sisterhood, because sure. I have served with a lot of very talented and wonderful women. You know, there's a couple of things that day that I think show the commitment back and forth, um, aside from anything I did. But Dan Gelada coming in to do the resupply that day, or the uh, put the CSAR folks in. At this point in time, anybody that followed the first aircraft getting shot down had to know that it was a dangerous situation they were going into. Dan went in there, and he got shot down. Mike went in there, and he got shot down. A Super 6-2 with... Uh, Jimmy Cohn and Mike Gafina went in there and put Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart on the ground. They were going back in. When they got shot down, they were going back in to check and see how those guys were progressing in their movement towards the – because it was two guys on the ground in an area that was actually – had been a park – but when during the famine, when folks came from the hinterland into the city, they built shacks, you know, or any kind of protection that they could. And it was, I mean, it was amazed working their way through there back to Mike's where his crash site was. So that was the commitment on those guys to even put themselves on the ground yeah. to get there to the aircraft. And then the commitment from the air crew to go back out there and really try and figure out what was going on, see how they were progressing through that. There's that level of commitment. Yeah. A guy by the name of Carl Meyer and Keith Jones were flying in a little bird and they were coming into the first crash site because they wanted to do something. You could get a little bird down on the ground. There weren't places to land a Blackhawk close by, but here they could put a little bird on the at the intersection right by that where that crash site was. So they came in and landed. A couple of the guys had climbed out of the aircraft already out of Super 6-1 and were pulling security. And there were a lot of Somalis moving in that direction. They always... As somebody said, yeah, they run towards the gunfight. That's what was going on. And there was a lot going on, like Trey said. Mm -hmm. Forces have been there from all over the world. Pakistanis, really, uh, when they got, I forget how many Pakistani soldiers were killed. Mm -hmm. uh, leading like a up. dozen. I mean, it's like a yeah. dozen. Yeah. Doing searches is what really escalated this whole 
conflict between the UN and the Habegator tribe. So anyhow, they were run to the gunfight and uh, where the crash site was, Carl came in and landed and told Keith, hey, get out and help get some of those guys on board the aircraft. So Keith gets out of the aircraft and he's now getting over there helping the wounded that had been in the crash on board the aircraft. Carl sitting in the aircraft, a smaller guy jumps out in front of him and I mean, you're strapped in nothing but plexiglass in between you and, and that guy. And that guy has an AK-47, cracks off a couple rounds. Carl gets his weapons out and the guy hops back behind cover. He jumps out again, cracks off a couple rounds. Carl exchanges rounds with him. They miss each other. I forget how many times Carl said that went on, but it was a number of times. And then he's like, okay, now I know where he's going to be when he comes out and just waited there and was able to, to deal the situation when the guy jumped out the next time and he was, he was successful. But those guys stood there on the ground during a fight like that, you know, Keith getting the guys on board and finally it got too hot and they had to take off. And, uh, and then, so they took off and flew those guys back out to the uh, hospital. So that kind of commitment. And then later the guys that had to come back out into the city to try and get back to the first crash site to provide any kind of support that go on. And these are guys now that are coming back out. Jeff Stroiker, who was a chaplain today, but was one of the Ranger leaders during that time frame. NCOs had to rally his forces and get them back out onto vehicles and try and get back out in the city. So the commitment to the brotherhood of the people you're fighting with went all different ways, oh, yeah. you know, from the ground forces to the aviation yeah. side of things. Little bird gun guys, they started the day off hot and heavy. There were two teams. One team was back getting rearmed and refueled. The other team is out providing close yeah. air support. And urban environment, very tough, close proximity, all danger, close shooting mm-hmm. uh, all night long. But that helped the guys that were you know, at first crash site trying to resolve the situation there and get the guys protected and out of the aircraft. Yeah. You know, that's really what took the longest amount of time was extracting the bodies out of the crushed aircraft yeah it's kind of an obscure part of the movie but i think one of my favorite scenes and it was written in the book as well is there's a soldier on the ground and a little bird above him rattling off and the hot shells happen to like go down his uniform and his back and are burning him just to be that close and and that i think you said earlier Mm. intense Mm -hmm. you know vicious it Mm -hmm. does seem like that according to the movie and the book is very well written Mm -hmm. i I really like the book i think you said on the way over they kind of treated that like the after action uh, of Mm -hmm. the whole conflict yeah Mm -hmm. they had let mark bowden come in to interview and get as much information as they could if there's one thing i can say about another aspect of the 160th and really any in the whole community is they are very critical of themselves and want to know every aspect of Mm. either what went right or what went wrong. It's just the way they're built. Yeah. One level of commitment I would say back to Mike is, and we were talking about the loudspeakers, right? So just to kind of give you just a little bit of background on that, we knew he was alive and we wanted to, you know, our PSYOPs guys were like, we need to get a message out there. So two things, number one, If they put him on film and we can hear where the loudspeakers are, maybe we can pinpoint kind of where he Uh, is, right? But also to give Mike hope, right? right? Let him know we weren't going anywhere. So Dan, I guess, was the... They had asked Dan Gelato, who was very close to Mike, come over and record a message to Mike. I can't remember what the message was. It was something like, you know, Mike Durant, we are not leaving you, basically is what the message was in the midst of some of the music 
of the day, I guess, right? The broadcasting music, yeah, too? yeah. So we selected, oh, yeah. you know, some music was selected sure. that he would be like, "Man, those are my guys." Oh, okay. I think yeah. we had ACDC song. Or was a. It was couple, early '90s, so yeah, whatever it was yeah. of the era. But it was, you know, we only had a couple aircraft left, so we're all taking, you know, we're all taking turns going up, doing our thing, and, yeah. and flying, flying loudspeaker missions. So, oh. again, it was back to that level of commitment. We. I think the day we saw him on TV, we, we got a little bit of hope in us because we had absolutely yeah. been devastated from, yeah. you know, the previous day's events, yeah. right? Yeah. So that was a big deal for us. You talk about being anywhere in four hours and the aircraft that you fly. Are you at the mercy, I take it, probably of the Air Force to get where you need to go as far as folding up the blades and stuffing it in a C-5 or C-17 mm-hmm. or back then a C-141? Is that where you get your rides generally? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're going worldwide, you're getting it. A- from the Air Force, there's no doubt about that. I mean, one of the key tasks that you have to be able to do is deployability. Right. And so prepping the aircraft for deployment and then prepping it to, once you get off the aircraft on the other end, to execute your mission is one of the key things that we practice on all the time. Yeah. I would hope you have a special phone to the Air Force because, uh, speaking from experience, sometimes arranging airlifts can be difficult, but I, I assume... Yeah, I don't want to get into that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a love-hate relationship with the Air Force. Yeah. I mean, there's some phenomenal people that I know in the Air Force, and there's others that have aggravated me. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, they- well, all right, so then moving back to the Brotherhood, let's extend that to the home front, mm-hmm. as I like to sometimes. What's it like for the families back home? I mean, you're home, you're gone, you're home, you're gone, you're doing dangerous things. I assume, at least in our squadrons, when I deployed, our spouses would get together and they'd have fun days with the kids or whatever. But how is it for the families? Uh, the families are very close. They depend on each other. The family support groups are off the charts. I mean, I can't speak for today because I've been removed from it. But I know sure. that, you know, back in the day, the families are in it just as much as we were. Yeah. Right. And so there were alert rosters and everybody stayed connected and, you know, we all dealt with our own family issues together. I mean, as a unit and that's how it, you know, it's part of the shtick, right? It's not just me. It's my family. Right. Yeah. yeah Trey, that makes a lot of sense. Stan, what was your experience like? Uh, you, you were married then. I, I hope you're still married to the same <laughs> yeah, nice young uh, lady. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my wife, Wendy, beautiful woman. She's stayed with me. We just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary uh, this last year, October 16th, which is an ongoing battle between she and I. She, well, you got the cameras here to yeah, prove yeah. it, Wendy. She remembered. <laughs> Absolutely remember. Yeah, and she stayed with me mostly out of curiosity, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> about that, because I didn't make life easier for uh, okay. you know over the course of our time together. And uh I love her for that, yeah. for sure. But, but even back in the early 90s, right, there wasn't so much cell networks yet. The email was just starting to come around, I think. But, boy, the news was always ready to mm-hmm. send something to families back home before the rest of us were ready to control the message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were oftentimes kept in the dark about exactly what was going on. They, the spouses. They, the spouses, mm-hmm. correct. You know, here over the last war fighting bit that we've been involved in where you're pretty much aware of what's going on. If we're doing a specific mission somewhere, there wasn't a lot of news coverage about it. But in the case of Mogadishu, on the night of the 4th, when Mike was videoed and came out on TV and we knew he was alive, I mean, everybody at that point in time knew that meant all the wives found out what was going on. And mm-hmm. the unit really had to be prepared to be on their messaging at that point in time there's a lot of drama that obviously comes along with it Mm -hmm. when people die a lot of uncertainty as the situation developed and uh 
it's challenging even in the best of times yeah. to to make everybody feel comfortable but i think the unit did a good a job as they could do yeah. it really i think also highlighted any deficiencies that we might have had at that point in time and made it better for the future yeah. and uh, that's always the thing about after action reports is you know we talked about how brutally honest we want to be right. if you forget why you're being brutally honest is not tear somebody down but really to make things better that's, that's the purpose of it i think we did a good job at shoring up all aspects yeah. of the mm. organization was mike married at the time do you know he was yeah. so his spouse found out when she saw yeah her? it was there's a bunch of weird stories about premonitions that people had about mm. uh things before they even knew anything was going on <laughs> and uh but yeah, she found out they they sent out notification teams wow. and everybody has relationships. So in the building of the family uh, structure there, hey, if something does go wrong, who would you want to be here when you're notified? Yeah. And if you have several people on different teams and then all those teams are disrupted, you can see how challenging that yeah. could be. So, yeah, it was an interesting and delicate and challenging time mm -hmm. for for everybody. I yeah. mean, you know, the wives are. You can imagine, we have a structure, right, at the 160th, right? I mean, I'm the platoon leader, stands, you know, we live together and we fight together. And and the wives are the background that also has to have some sort of structure. And it is a lot on the families, mm -hmm. right? Um, thank goodness, you know, they all step up and make things happen. It's quite amazing, honestly. My wife, Debbie, who I've been married for 37 years, was in the middle of wow. it as well. And next thing you know, I mean, she's in the middle of it right and uh we all got a call home what a couple nights later we actually got to say hi to our wife or our spouses for about we had a 10 minute call or a long line of you oh, know, they sure. opened up a they opened up a line for us remember that mm. times are different no cell phones right. no email it was letters it's kind of yeah. weird i mean it's, i can't even imagine going back to that right but anyway well you're a different person now i mean you're right i mean yeah. you're Older and wiser, yeah. ideally. But the families do bear yeah. um, a, oh, yeah. a hell of a burden. They still do. And, you know, hats off to them. Because, yeah. you know, the guys like Stan, the guys that are there forever, they can't do it without them. It just, you know, it's, yep. it's the only way it works. All right. Well, the next segment I'm ready for is listener questions. But, um, Trey, you said you separated before 9-11. Stan, you were there after any stories from uh did you go end up flying in iraq or afghanistan or were you on to different things by then i, I was not in the 160th anymore okay. i was in the army spent plenty of time in both those locations yeah. but not as part of the regiment were they involved i would assume in uh, both theaters and i guess it's maybe the same theater but they but, absolutely were yeah yep i did some support of them did a lot of uh isr flying basically overhead with a uh, pretty good camera mm -hmm. that uh could help keep them informed well let's uh, move on then i've got some listener questions here these are from our patreon supporters and patreon is just a web-based system where people can support their favorite shows like the fighter pilot podcast and one of the perks they get is the ability to know about interviews coming up and pose questions so the first one is from niels hansen whose understanding of special operations units is that they don't necessarily do anything unique or dramatically different than standard units they just do it to absolute perfection through relentless training and discipline, perhaps in higher stakes environments. Would you agree with that assessment as it pertains to the 160th? Yeah, so, well, actually one of the guys that was a chalk leader on Trey's uh, aircraft, a guy by the name of Tom DiDomaso, ended up working for me at one point in time and uh, dedicated professional uh, soldier. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And his 
point that he always used to make to just about anybody that we were conducting training for was special ops does the basics well all the time. And that's really the hallmark of whether you're in the Rangers, whether you're in the 160th or some other organizations. But establishing those fundamentals in the 160th, you're doing basic navigation with a map and compass, no navigation. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks so that if all that stuff quits working, you can still do your job. Mm -hmm. And that became, once I heard Tom say that, I just adopted it as a saying, but it, it was always part of really who I was. Is you should always be able to do your job. And if you can do your job with 10% of your equipment actually operational, whatever that equipment is, then you should be doing 100% of your job. And so that, establishing those fundamentals, all the technical stuff just enhances your ability to do the job better, more proficiently, get greater insight at times. But you should always be able to do your job. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's absolutely right on that particular question. Right. I, I agree 100%. Yeah, Niels is an Army officer, by the way. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of a couple, I don't want to call them cliches, but expressions, right? Uh, if you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I might have yeah, screwed that one up, but it. something <laughs> like that, right? That's it. And so the idea is, yeah, good at the fundamentals. The football teams were probably that way as well, blocking and tackling. Mm -hmm. So then the follow-on to that is from John Clark, who says, does the 160th enjoy priority for new technologies that are planned for incorporation into the regular Army? And he adds on here, fleet of aviation assets, but maybe in other ways too, not just aviation. Yeah, so I don't know how much priority they get. I mean, there's different streams of funding that come into it, but I know that they're always, I mean, the rest of the Army doesn't have an armed Blackhawk. Armed Blackhawk is such a diverse aircraft. It can be a gunship, but it can also be an assault aircraft. It, you know, it's so many things and can do both at the same time. For all intents and purposes, it can be used as an assault aircraft, even when that's not their primary mission at the moment. So I don't know how much priority they get from an Army perspective. They do go out and seek new technologies to advance their capabilities, and they have some ability to be able to do that. And then there are plenty of things that the 160th has pioneered that ultimately trickle out into the Army. And that's the hopes in you know so many ways in mm -hmm. the Rangers, in any of the special operations capabilities who might have a stream of funding that allows them to develop a capability, but then either people take that beyond the organization because they move out into the Army and are able to share some of the tactics, techniques, and procedures or equipment, or they just elevate to the point where they're now a general in charge of a program that knows the way things can be and injects it that way. So it is a, uh, a birthplace of a lot of uh, innovation, which is really nice because it allows you to have the people there feel like, hey, I'm making a difference, yeah. uh, not only for the ability of the folks I'm supporting, in some of these challenging uh, operations that we do, but I can make a difference for the Army as well. Yeah. So, for example, when you flew with the 160th and then later you flew back in the regular Army, you said, like, for example, same helmet, same night vision goggles, same sidearm maybe? Yeah, a lot of that was uh, pretty typical, uh, just Army kit. I mean, okay. my pistol and the rifle in the 160th was the same as it was in the Army. A lot of that, what I took out into the rest of the Army was just a thought process about how to get things done. And I also had a very good understanding of the way that the Army kind of worked and who we needed to talk to to be able to get things done, whether it's work and ranges or any number of things or places to go. People's a big difference anyhow. You get the right people in the right leadership positions and you can 
just phenomenally turn something around. (laughs) That's why I'd say big advantage is when the guys leave there. The technology, just because it costs a damn much, you know, it's going to take a while to get out there on a big scale, you know, big program acts. That's right. All right. So the remainder of these questions are aircraft specific and some are looking into the future. So we'll do our best. Richard Dropkin says, given the various loadouts for the attack mission, is there a case for adding a dedicated attack helicopter to the inventory? You could argue that MH and H6 is already that. If so, would the Apache or Cobra be a better fit? Branch biases aside. Now the Cobra used to be an army aircraft. I don't know. Me personally, I think uh, they are not a fit. 2.75 2.75 rockets are area fire weapons from a thousand meters out. I mean, you know, a lot of the AH-6 work is close quarters, urban environment, or extremely danger close fire, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it is precision on top of the target, pounding the crap out of it. The other thing is just the deployability of that aircraft and the support structure that follows it is really built around that AH-6 platform. Yeah, well, the Apache, for example, uh, we did a fly-off. Uh, there was some interest in armed Blackhawks uh, in Korea at one point in time. And so deployed both aircraft there on the same C-5, or I think it was C-5 that took them over there. They got off. Our guys built up, flew away, you know, where they're going to do it. The Apache took them till the next day till they were able to get oh. there. So one thing I could tell you, if that was their mission to be able to rapidly deploy the army would get better at it. And if you gave it to a bunch of guys that wanted to be able to do that, like the guys in the 160th, hey, I need, that is your mission. I need you to be able to get this thing down. They get that down to as quick as you could get it. But I'm going to be one of those guys that say, never say never type of thing. Because mm-hmm. you know, when we were in Iraq in particular, when you need a tank, nothing substitutes nice for to a, have tank. a tank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The armed Blackhawk can carry all the munitions that uh, an Apache carries and then some that they don't carry and so why do you have to have a dedicated aircraft to do this when i can have a multi-role aircraft that can hold passengers and do emergency evacuations or medevacs or something if there's not one to be had and also do the gunnery mission you know having a podcast i field a lot of questions from listeners and one for example is how come there's not rear firing missiles on fighter jets or how come the soviets had infrared search and track or earth systems before we did. And it's sort of a cop-out, but one of the answers I give, and it might apply here, which is why I'm going on this little sidebar, is I have faith that someone smart out there looked at it. And if it made sense to do, whether practically, technology, cost, whatever, they would do it. And so I would argue here, maybe, if someone at the 160th or anywhere else in the chain of command said, you need this and this makes sense, you'd probably Mm -hmm. have it. And the fact that you don't just says that, yeah, we're making mm-hmm. do with armed Blackhawks, mm-hmm. H6s, et cetera. That's not to say that there wouldn't be a specific application where Apache was the right vehicle for sure. it. But on a whole, you know, the variety of the missions they have to be able to tackle. And then you get into the whole supply lines yeah, and yeah. all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah. That- well, here's another fun one from George Bravo. Did the 160th ever consider the V-22 Osprey to either replace or supplant the MH-47? And then, again, there's more about the MH-47 and uh, another tilt rotor in a second. But do you happen to know if they ever looked at the Osprey? I could tell you. I, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> and, it's an, and the Osprey's a Marine Air Force, you know, yeah. right? so yep. I don't know if they ever even evaluated it. At the end of the day, the ways that I've seen it employed, it has a role to play. Mm-hmm. A lot of the role is not necessarily the one that would be played by 
but it can get long range fast. You know, the Army's trying to get there with the future assault aircraft. And that is the next question. It's from uh, Jim Gundog, the V-280 Valor, possibly. And again, now we're looking in the future, but mm-hmm. based on what you know about the 160th mission and the 280, if anything, can you see a role for that? Just don't, don't know. know. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, they got to feel the Valor first and get through, you know, right. getting that thing awarded. Uh, but... You know, I I couldn't. I don't have a. I don't have an opinion one way or another on that one. Uh, right. Vincent, Stan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then final one from Jevin. Hearing how capable and robust the Chinook was operating at the altitudes required in Afghanistan, are there other aircraft coming down the pike that could replace it and operate in similar or even harsher environments, or will the future simply see more and powerful and sophisticated MH forty seven iterations? I think we're all looking at a crystal ball, yeah. right? I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. In the end, everybody wants to, as I say, go faster, farther, and carry more stuff. You know, so mm-hmm. who knows where that's going to end up, right. right? But for today and for the near term, obviously, the platforms is what they fly, and, and they're getting the most out of them. And they're all always continuing to evolve. Yeah. So who knows? Well, that is, other than a few wrap-up questions, mm-hmm. pretty much the bulk of what I hope to cover. And, I, you know... Every time I have an interview like this, I think to myself, gosh, we didn't even barely scratch this Mm -hmm, or that or the mm -hmm. training as far as that goes. So what would you gentlemen like the viewers and listeners to know about the 160th, whether it's their capability or their training and assessment or anything like that? Trey, I'll start with you. I would just say that, you know, I think it's uh, folks ought to be very happy. They've got officers, warrant officers and enlisted dedicated to a mission like this, and they do it very well. And you want to talk about value and morals and a commitment to the mission. I mean, it is a fantastic place to be. And they offer something to this nation that they don't ask anything in return for it. It's a commitment. And I think that uh, they're a bunch of special people and uh, they will continue to be a bunch of special people. And before I let Stan take his piece of this, I would say one way that we always stay connected is through our Night Stalker Association. And I'll just bring that up to... If anybody's listening that wants to provide any type of support to the Night Stalker Association, it is a 5013C charity that is designed to support the families of Night Stalkers, whether fallen or to provide monetary support in various forms of fashion. It's a very robust organization. I would encourage everybody to look them up and see what they're about. I'm wearing my Old Dominion chapter shirt here, of which uh, Stan and I are members of. But we all stay connected. We're all part of the family. I'm very grateful to still call a lot of folks, friends and dear brothers that, right. you know, that we do stay connected and time seems to stand still between the times we see each other. So it's yeah. a, it's a pretty cool place to be, but I encourage everybody. If you're curious, check out the night stalker association, see what it's about. And uh, I'd encourage you to give. Well, on that note, since you gentlemen have donated your time to the show, the fighter pilot podcast will be happy to make a donation to the night soccer association Thank you. on behalf of you gentlemen and the viewers and we appreciate uh, it. Appreciate your time for sure. And helping us understand this Stan, I didn't ask you about where the four battalions are located. I didn't ask you how many people, I mean, all these things, a lot of folks can internet search and find out about, but the stories are really what make it. And you did a great job with that today. What have I not asked you? Yeah. So anybody that's really curious, uh, it is the world premier assault helicopter organization and uh, you have extreme professionals there they have a very challenging life uh, they're given a lot and from whom much is given much is expected and and that's exactly uh, what is required of folks that go there but 
from a feeling of satisfaction and doing the job that we expect to when we're soldiers close with and destroy the enemy, that's it's the place to be. All right. Well, as we transition then to the final few questions here, as much as you understand, we just had some listener questions about it, but what do you suppose is the future for the 160th? More of the same, getting bigger, getting smaller? Any way to know? I don't think their mission's going away. How, however they resource it, again, that's gazing into a crystal ball. Right. But I do think that the standard will not change. The mission will not change. I mean, it'll continue to evolve some, but for the most part, it will continue to be a bright spot in Army aviation. And if I may stand on I'm going to say one, speaking of bright spots in Army aviation. So we do have the Army Aviation Association of America. It is our, from an Army perspective, it's our tail hook kind of organization, right? And we do have a Hall of Fame that is littered with 160th personnel that have made incredible contributions to the cause of Army aviation from the time it started until today. Army aviation became a formal branch in 1980. Two, I believe. So for the last 40 plus years, we as Army aviators are part of a national professional organization that we can all call home. Stan is getting inducted into the Army Aviation Hall of Fame here this spring, which is a huge accomplishment. We were all excited. And I would just say me as an individual is extremely lucky to have in my platoon four or five Hall of Fame. I mean, how, how does that happen, right? I mean, Amazing I mean, guys people. that are in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. from an Army aviation standpoint. So I wasn't going to let today go by without recognizing Stan and <laughs> letting letting uh, let him know is a big big accomplishment getting ready to happen this For spring. Sure. All right. Thanks. Well, <laughs> um, you talked about the uh, the future and the crystal ball, and I think one additional point to make perhaps is I don't personally see the world situation getting. Yeah. Better. I mm-hmm. hate to say that, but I think there's going to be a need for sure. organizations like the 160th as long as humans inhabit yeah, yeah. the earth, it seems to me. Same so. Yeah. <laughs> we will never give up our army yeah. because of that. Right. But at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, uh, it is. there's always going to be a demand out there. Somebody's always going to want to cause a certain amount of disruption. The really cool thing is whatever that mission evolves into, mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind those guys will adapt and be able to bring a real professional response mm-hmm. to whatever those challenges are. How about the future for you? You're both still working. Stan, you're going to keep going for a while, or you got retirement somewhere on yeah, the horizon? Uh, you look young to me. <laughs> I'll turn 63 this year. All right. And uh, there's a lot of things I want to do. Um, it crosses my mind. You know, I've been asked that question more than one time. And we have a really successful company going right now. We're doing a lot of good work very innovative uh, in so many ways and it's neat to be part of that two partners and i we've just had a good run since 2008 but at some point in time i am gonna move on and do something different with my life and uh don't know exactly when that's gonna be right now but it's in the future for sure they say if you enjoy what you're doing you never work a day in your life so if you're not really working now you can't really retire (laughs) (laughs) well i do feel like i'm working now (laughs) i'm enjoying it and i love the people we have a great company and uh a lot of hardworking individuals, and yeah. we're really doing some good stuff for the Army in a whole uh, from our engineering side of things, so really appreciate that. Well, my older brother Kai tells me when grandkids show up, that changes everything, so I don't know if that's... i got plenty of grandkids. You do already? Right? Okay. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I was trying to be polite about it. No, them. no, no. I, <laughs> my daughters have been uh, very great, gracious and uh, providing me grandchildren. They're all great. All right. Trey, how about you? 
Uh, you know, I enjoy my current career. Uh, you know, I'm still able to give back to the military through my current organization, AVEX Aerospace. I mean, I'm a DOD contractor. We provide services and support of the U.S. military and Department of Defense in various forms or fashion. So I've been back in that space for about 10 years. You know, I still feel like I stay. it allows me to stay connected to the folks and to the Army and to the military and to mm-hmm. the mission as a whole. So I don't anticipate retiring anytime soon. I didn't win the lottery the other night, so <laughs> I enjoy what I do. I'm taking it yeah. one day at a time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you just made me uh, think of something, though, that you said a few episodes ago on 156. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turkey, who was a former Blue Angel, talked about being an ex, and the team would sometimes call exes, ex-Blue Angels, and ask about something or just check in or if they mm-hmm. were in town. Of course, that's different mm-hmm. with an mm-hmm. air show. But are you still both involved in some way other than the association? Like, will folks reach out to you, or is it kind of once you're gone, except for friendships kind of thing? I've had a number of opportunities to talk to folks that followed along, have some of the same jobs that I had, and uh, how do you handle this or any other insights that they might want to talk about? You know, I'm close to, I mean, Stan and I are about an hour and a half apart, so we try to at least try to play golf. We've been trying to put that on the calendar for a while, Uh, but we stay connected. You know, I don't really, I mean, for me personally, I'll I'll attend Night Stalker events, you know, down in uh, Williamsburg where our Old Dominion chapter is every now and again. But, you know, in terms of actually doing stuff inside the organization or it's really friendships and relationships is where I keep my keep it warm for me, yeah. if that makes sense. Sure thing. Trey, we'll stick with you. Trey Williams uh, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We have a tradition about call signs. Now, if you want to tease us fighter guys about that, you can. Yeah. But uh, it seems to be becoming more and more popular to have a call mm-hmm. sign. So did you have something you went by? And if uh, so, is there a fun story behind it? Well, mine was pig pen, right? <laughs> and I think it alluded to the fact of the way my desk probably looked because these are the guys that gave it to me. I guess that's where it came from. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I mean, we have uh, call signs, but it's a little different in the Army. We don't, not how we really kind of go by, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a kind of a something that you're given, and but it's not like we're using those call signs over the radio or, you know, at a bar. Or, you yeah. know, it's a, I mean, it's just, it's just different. Did you have a name tag with it on? I, you know, that's, I did have one. Okay, there you I go. That makes one. it official. Absolutely. That's it, that's it right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, Stan Wood, how about you? Mine was Buzz. Yeah, uh, Jerry Izzo gave me that uh, because we were deployed <laughs> together on a number of training missions, and he says I sounded like a buzzsaw at nighttime while I was sleeping, so I missed <laughs> my snoring. So I thought it had to do with something you were buzzing off with your yeah, rotor blades. Yeah, but, that, uh, that's it. I could uh, you know, shift that in a different direction, but no, that was it, uh, yeah. my snoring. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your service to the country and uh, your time today helping us understand 160th. It was really enlightening for me, and I hope the viewers and listeners enjoyed it as well. So thank you both very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the Internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. 
National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.